0: If you're new with us, I want to encourage you to consider that the group you just saw up here, hopefully you'll all consider how God might want to use you. We really are committed to that. As Marty mentioned, we're trying to make disciples who make disciples. So please, if you're looking for a church where you can just come and sit and soak and sour and stay uninvolved, this probably wouldn't be the best place for you. We really want to encourage you to be part of the body of Christ, and hopefully you'll come to our newcomer's dinner next week and get to know us a little better. We'd love to get to know you. If you have your Bible, if you want to turn to the Gospel of John this morning, we're starting a new series in the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll give you one, or you can borrow it, but we certainly would welcome you to keep it if you don't have one. Because we believe the Bible's God's word. And that's how you're going to find God. That's how you're going to grow. That's how you're going to have a relationship with him. One of the things the early church did though as well. Is they prayed when they gathered. And the Bible says that they prayed for their government. 1 Timothy 2.5 says. Pray for kings and all who are in authority. That Christians can lead a tranquil life in godliness. We have an upcoming election that's really important. And it could affect whether or not we're gonna be persecuted and whether or not we're gonna see our country morally and spiritually continue to go in a direction that would not be favorable for believers. So we can make a difference through prayer and voting. So I really wanna encourage you, don't not vote. Don't just go, wow, whatever. God uses voting and he uses prayer. And so let's pray right now together for our country and for our future, Father. Because the Bible tells us to pray for our authorities, we know, Lord, that you are in control of this land. And we thank you for that over 200 years we have enjoyed freedom to preach the gospel and to found a nation on Christian principles. And now, Lord, as, as the foundations of our, naked, of our nation are being shaken, we want to pray for mercy We know, Lord, that we deserve judgment because of the rampant sin and the lukewarmness of the church. But Father, we pray that you would be gracious, that just as you were willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there were enough righteous people, that for the sake of your glory and your church and because other nations still look to us as Christians, would you not judge and destroy us? Would you put people in office? who will lead us in directions that will be in agreement with Scripture, that you would stop the tide of abortion and the wickedness and the corruption in politics, the, the rampant sin in, in our culture, sexual sin and drunkenness and, and the great divide between the rich and poor and the racial injustices. There are so many sins. Father, it's a wonder you haven't destroyed us already. But I especially, and as a body of Christ, want to pray for our churches in America. Father, the churches are drooping. The churches are not well. There are many churches that have become lukewarm, and we don't want to be one of them. We pray for revival in American churches. We pray that those who are truly born again will begin to live holy lives, that they will be different from this world, and that families will be strengthened, and the gospel will have an impact. We know the same Holy Spirit is working in our midst and ask that you would bless as we gather your word and our worship and our prayers and that we would continue to see a revival here in our church and great miracles at, at the hand of Jesus, Lord, as, as lives are transformed for his glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we've called this study The Abundant Life, and one of the things I want to encourage you to do is if you're going to grow as a Christian, you have to learn how to read the Bible. Okay. If you went into a bookstore, you would not pick up a white book that has no title, no table of contents, no preface. You would not open to the middle of it and start reading it. You would have no way of understanding it. Same thing's true of the Bible. It's God's Word with 66 books, and He wants you to read all of them. And the best way to learn the Bible is to take a book of the Bible, start at the beginning, and get some background, and then read through that book. You'll be amazed at how many things that you'll learn just reading through the book. At the same time, you'll have questions. You won't get it all the first time, much like watching a movie. There's always more to learn. So I'm not going to take a lot of time to give you the background of the Gospel of John because you could do that. I want to encourage you, if you don't have a study Bible, we sell them here. We don't make any money on them. You can go online. There's many good study Bibles, the MacArthur study Bible, New American Standard study Bible, Ryrie study Bible. If you're not sure, we could recommend one. But any study Bible will tell you who wrote a book, what are some of the themes, What's the purpose of the book? What are some key verses? And then you can just start reading through it. So let me just say a couple things about John, and then we're going to get started. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them inspired by God, but each of them written by a different author who was choosing to include or exclude certain things he learned from the life of Christ to get a message across. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar and are called the synoptic Gospels because they're seen together. You can tell that they borrowed from one another and they sort of outlined the life of Jesus with a lot of overlap. They still had things they left out and ways that they focused on certain things. But John was not written at the same time and John's very different. The synoptics were probably written in the 60s, 50s or 60s, maybe 20 years after Jesus went back to heaven. But John, apparently wrote the Gospel of John in the 90s. That means 60 years after he had been with Christ on earth, he is led by the Lord to write this Gospel of John. Now, he's led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all the truth. But John is familiar, we assume, with what's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he takes a different slant. He says, Jesus did many other things that are not written in this book. But the things that I put in this book, he says, I put them very intentionally. And we're going to talk about why. So in John, we'll see seven signs or miracles of Jesus that are not recorded in the other gospels. So John's like, I could tell similar things, but, but I'm going to select some different things about Jesus. Ironically, though, one of the most important things about the gospel of John is that John's one of the only gospel authors who says here's why I wrote my book. He says in chapter 20, and this is why it's really helpful to think about this. John says, I could have written many other things about Jesus. But he said, the things that I wrote, I wrote so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing that, you will have eternal life. So John's mission and purpose, one of them for writing this book, is to help people become believers and get saved. In fact, John uses the word believe 96 times in this book, not just John 3.16. Now, that ought to cause you and me to think about a couple of things. Number one, the Gospel of John is a great evangelistic book. Many, many, many people have been saved reading John. If someone says to you, hey, I'm interested in reading the Bible, don't tell them to read Proverbs, tell them to read John. I personally attended a church when I was 17, totally pagan, lost. Someone gave me a gospel of John. I took it home, and in reading the gospel of John, the Lord opened my eyes. I became born again, just like Jesus said in John chapter 3, and God so transformed me that I, that's what I'm doing what I'm doing, because the Lord used the gospel of John in my life. So there's a couple things I want you to think about. We've called the theme the abundant life, because in the middle of the gospel of John, Jesus says this. He goes, the thief, it's the devil, he's in this world to steal, kill, and destroy. So whenever we read of sin and ugliness and murder and death and deceit and destruction and famine and torture, all of these things are because of sin, this darkened world that's been cursed and is ruled by Satan. And Satan hates people and all he wants to do is drag you to hell. And if he was a Christian, he just wants to mess you up. Jesus said, on the other hand, that's why Satan came. He goes, now I came that my sheep might have life more abundantly. So we've called this the abundant life. And first thing I did is I said, I want to know what he meant by abundantly. So I looked up that word, and it means something which is not ordinary, something that is extraordinary or remarkable, so Jesus says, if you follow me, if you believe me, you can have an extraordinary, remarkable life. It also has the idea of a mount, like an overflowing, when you talk about having abundance. So Jesus wants us to have this overflowing, remarkable, abundant life. Now, we need to be careful here, because what he didn't mean is overflowing, remarkable, abundant with possessions. That's nonsense. If you're attending a church where they're telling you God wants you to be rich. I can tell you from the Bible that is wrong. God does not promise us riches, nor does he promise us an easy life. The Bible says through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. He does not promise us good health all the time. This whole prosperity gospel is a false teaching. Jesus never promised to heal everybody. He didn't promise that we're all going to be in good health. And if you're not in good health, it's because you don't have enough faith. But what he did promise is this extraordinary, abundant life. This life that says, even if I'm going through sorrows, I can have overflowing joy. Even in my tears, I can have perfect peace. In my fellowship with Jesus, I can experience unspeakable happiness, regardless of what's going around me. And that in my prayers and communion with him and with other Christians, I can experience, as John said, joy unspeakable. So if you're interested in experiencing that abundant life, which is really eternal life. You see, the abundant life is eternal life. One of the things you and I need to understand about eternal life is you don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life when you're saved, when you believe in Christ. And Jesus didn't describe eternal life as Ponce de Leon's fountain of youth. Gulp, gulp, drink this and you'll live forever. This is how he described eternal life. He said, Father, I've given them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they might know you and that they might know me, Jesus Christ. So it's a quality of life. It's a life that that is a relationship with Jesus. It's not just knowing there was a guy named Jesus. It's a life of walking with him and talking with him and, and fellowshipping with him and bearing fruit for him and him manifesting himself and growing in grace and in the knowledge of him. And John has a remarkable way of taking us into the deep end of the pool. Somebody said John's simple enough for a baby to wade in, deep enough to drown an elephant. So the Gospel of John is structured, basically the first 12 chapters are are Jesus out in the public, presenting himself, inviting people to get saved. And then 13 through 17 are Jesus in private training his disciples, and then we have the crucifixion and resurrection. This morning we're gonna look at verses one through 18, which is often called John's prologue. This is his preface, and this is an incredibly profound section. In fact, many of the themes that are going to come up in the book are brought out in 1 1 through 18. So, what I want to encourage you to do is I have another thought here. There's no reason why many of you could not take what we're learning from John and then you could teach this somewhere else. You could get some of your friends and neighbors together and say, hey, how would you like to read through the Gospel of John together? And we can talk about it. So I'm going to give you some sort of outline, structural things. But I want you to think about the value of saying, you don't, I want you to bring your unsaved friends here and give them a Bible. But there's no reason why you can't go to work and say, hey, anybody want to start reading through the Gospel of John? You could do this with your kids. You could do this with your neighbors. You could do this with anybody. The guy you go to the gym with. You could sit and study through the gospel of John together so with that in mind understand that God is not just giving us information but he's equipping us the Bible says pastors are to equip the saints for the work of service so that you can can take your your gifts and go out into the community the Bible says that God has called us all to do the work of the Lord and so Paul said to Timothy the things that I have taught you I want you to teach others who will then teach others and the gospel of message will continue to go as we make disciples who make disciples. So, what I want us to do is read through the gospel of John 1, 1-18, and then we're going to loop back and we're going to ask and answer some questions. Questions like this. So I'm going to say them up front, and then as we're reading, see what you can pick up. We're going to ask this, the question, who is this Jesus? And, and in this prologue, what has he done? And then why is John the Baptist preaching about Jesus? And then, why did Jesus come down here to his creation? And then finally, how did his creation respond when he came? So this prologue is not designed to say, I'm going to tell you everything I can about Jesus. But as we're reading, I want you to notice, he goes, this is who Jesus is. This is what he did. This is who John the Baptist is. This is what he did. Then he comes back, this is who Jesus is. These are some more things that he did. Then he goes, this is who John is, and this is what he did. So it's kind of hard to outline because he doesn't do all the Jesus, then all the John. So it kind of flip-flops. So let's read, and then we'll loop back and answer the questions. In the beginning was the Word. We ask, well, who's that? The Word was with God And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So whoever he was, he's he's old. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Nothing slipped by the goalie. Like, where did that come from? He made everything. In him was life. I wonder what he means by life. And that life was the light of men. So, so John's using these metaphors. The light, and here I think it's talking about Jesus, the light shines in the darkness. What does that mean? When, when did Jesus shine in the darkness? And, and what is darkness here? And the darkness did not comprehend it. I didn't know darkness could comprehend anything. Is darkness a person? That's Jesus. Now we're off on John. There came a man sent from God. So he didn't just journey on his own. He was sent from God. His name was John. Oh, yeah? What was his bag? He came as a witness to testify about the light. Hmm, wonder why the light needed a witness. So that all might believe through him. Believe what? Why is it so important to believe? Lest we get confused who John was, he says, no, he was not the light. He came to testify about the light. Now John says, let me take you back to Jesus again. There was the true light, which coming into the world, oh, there it is again. The light shines in the darkness. He came into the world. What did he do when he came into the world? He enlightens every man. Really? The word was in the world? How did it go? Well, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. You're like, yeah, yeah, you told us that. He's a creator. So it must have been cool for everybody to get to meet their creator. Uh, No, not exactly. Look what it says. The world didn't know him. He came to his own. By the way, in Greek, that means own things. He came to his creation. But then it says, and those who were his own did not receive him. wonder who that is. Who are those who are his own? What do you mean they didn't receive him? How can you not receive your creator? But wait, did anyone receive him? Well, yeah, look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Wait a minute, I thought we're all children of God. I thought thought we'd join hands and sing We Are the World and Bono and we're all children. Now, only those who, well, well, how do you receive him? even to those who believe in his name. What, what does that mean, to believe in his name? It means to be born. What do you mean, like, like born again? Well, yeah, yeah. So, so, I, so, so I guess if you want to go to heaven, you choose to receive Jesus. You, 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 you determine in your will, I'm going to receive him. And John goes, well, sort of. But, but he goes, let me tell you why you received him. You were born not of blood, so it's not physical, nor was it the will of flesh or the will of man. So it wasn't your choice, it was of God. And you're like, that sounds like my first birth. I didn't have a lot of say in it, you know? I didn't pick my parents, I didn't pick my location, I didn't pick my birthday. It was entirely a sovereign work of God. And he goes, yeah, you could think of it that way. When you received Christ, it's because God caused you to be born into his family. And he says, by the way, let's, let's loop back around and do it again. The light came to the world. He says, the word, oh yeah, that guy you mentioned back in the beginning, he became flesh. What do you mean he became flesh? He turned into a human? And, and he dwelt among us. Well, how long? About 33 years. And, and, and we saw his glory. So he wasn't like, one of these things was not like the other. He could, he could do his A-E-T glow. He could go, Dee! so he could glow. What does that mean? We saw his glory. This glory was like one who was the only unique begotten one from the Father. This guy was pretty cool. He was, he was full of grace and truth. Now, what does that mean? He was full of grace. He was like, very proper. Excuse me. Let me use my right spoon. Full of grace. What does that mean? And he was full of truth. And then he says, let's get back to John. John testified about him. And John cried out. He said, this was he of whom I said. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I'll say he existed before you. You said he was way back in the beginning. And then John says, in of his fullness, we have all received of his abundance. What do you mean? What have I received from him? What's he done for me? And not only that, he gave me grace upon grace, like flowing waves, one after another, an ocean of unending grace. Well, what about Moses? Well, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And you go, wait a minute, you're killing me here, like, Like, I always thought God was invisible. I thought no one could see him. Like, Moses has to see him. He goes, no, you're right. No one has seen God at any time. But yet, the only begotten God, which is Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father. What does that mean? That's a figure of speech for his relationship with God. He has explained him. Oh, so wait. I can't see God, but God came down here in humanity so he could he could explain what God's like. Wow, that's pretty cool, John. You're taking us taking deep. Now this is why I say it's kinda of hard to outline because he's like, Jesus, this is what he did, this is who he is. John, this is what he did, this is who he is. This is Jesus, this is who he did, this is what he did. This is John, this is what he did. So what I thought is, we'll, we'll dial it back, we'll start over and we'll ask the first question. In this passage, who is Jesus? Okay, so if you're taking notes and you're gonna teach through this, you could start by saying, who is Jesus? Well, we're going to talk about three things. Number one, he's the word. What in the world does that mean? He's the word, okay? The Greek word here is logos. Some of you have heard this. Jesus is the logos. Now, John, why are you calling him the logos? Remember, the Holy Spirit is inspiring John, so he's not going, let me just make up a name for him. A couple of possibilities. One is, the Greeks of this time had spent much time talking about the logos, Not from a biblical standpoint, but the word logos was a word that was used of reason. And so in Greek philosophy, they were very preoccupied with the logos and with reason. And perhaps John is simply saying, hey, you know, you guys who are groping around with your philosophies trying to find the reason and meaning, it's not not a thing, it's Jesus. But probably better than that, I would suggest that it's probably one of the other two, maybe what john has in mind here knowing that many of the people who are reading this had an old testament background in proverbs chapter 8 wisdom is personified so the 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 thought of wisdom which is a concept becomes a person in proverbs 8 and she talks so in proverbs chapter 8 wisdom says i wisdom was with god in the beginning i was there as he created i was rejoicing and so some have suggested that the word is, is simply a, a manifestation of God's wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God. But probably, in my mind, a third option is the best. And, what is it, what, and the question is, what is the purpose of words? Words express, right? So when my grandkids go, eh, 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 a little two-year-old, eh, we're going, use your words, man. What are you trying to get across to us, Right? Jesus is the Word. He's the divine expression of God. God has expressed himself through Christ. So who is Jesus? He's the Word, God's expression of himself. But a second thing that we learn about the Word is that he's divine. He's a divine being. Look, the Word was God, okay? Now, Just as a side note, if if you're interacting with Jehovah's Witnesses, their Bible is going to say here, the word was a God, and it's going to be a small a and a small g. And they did this in the 1920s because they don't believe Jesus is God. And they'll say to you, well, in the Greek, it doesn't mean that. Of course, now most people are at a stalemate because you don't read Greek, most of you, and they don't read Greek, most of you. But I can tell you this, and you can do research on this, that that's flat-out wrong, that grammatically, it can translate, the word was God. And you can't look, Greek didn't use capitals and small letters, so you can't go, was it a small theos or a large theos? But trust me, that's an adequate and correct translation, the word was God. So frankly, when a Jehovah's Witness says, that's not what my Bible says, my conversation ends there. I go, well, if we're going to use your Bible, I'm checking out because your Bible was twisted and distorted in the 1920s because your leader doesn't believe that Jesus is God. But you know what? I've never once had a Jehovah's Witness say, well, fine, I'm not talking to you anymore. They'll go, we can use your Bible. But notice, this is important. This isn't a small thing. John says, you, I want you to believe that Jesus is God. You go, what difference does it make? How about this? Heaven and Hell. Because the Bible says, if you're going to go to heaven, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Not that he was a God. John says at the end of the book, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's divine. And believing that, you'll have life in his name. So Jesus is is divine. But notice that he's distinct from the Father. He's distinct from the Holy Spirit. So he brings this out. He goes... The word was God, but, but also the word was with God. You're like, wait, you're losing me. Is he God or is he with God? And you're like, mm-hmm. Because there's this relationship. It's not like he just happened to be there. Hey, look, Jesus is with God. But that word with there can be actually translated towards God. The word was towards God. That they're distinct, and yet they're in a relationship. So this divine Jesus is in an eternal relationship with God, and you're like, you're like, well, then why don't we believe in the duality, God in two persons? Because this isn't the only verse in the Bible about God. There are other verses that talk about the Holy Spirit being distinct and God. So Jesus is the Logos, the Word. He's a divine being, distinct from the Father, but in a special relationship with Him. And then third, the other thing we see is that He's the light and the source of abundant eternal life. So when it says, verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The idea is that within Jesus Christ is, first of all, physical life, right? If Jesus says, I'm taking my life from you, you're done. Because he breathed into us the breath of life, and he could take that. But greater than that, in Jesus dwells eternal life eternal abundant life which enlightens and fills every man who believes so jesus has something that mankind needs life and that's why he would say if any man's thirsty come to me maybe you've been searching for meaning in religion it's not religion it's jesus he's the abundant source of eternal life that's who jesus is but then we want to ask the question in this section what has he done well, first of all, notice in verse 3 that he's our creator. And then we'll notice that he came to his creation in the form of incarnation. But, but just think about this for a moment. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now listen, parents, your kids will not in intuitively figure this out. You must teach them this diligently because every subtle movie, every subtle cartoon is often sending them a very different message. And so I pray to God, Lord, bring my grandkids close by that I might Deuteronomy 6 and speak often of Christ to them and teach them and and have them learn scripture. And and my daughter and her husband, and bring them to Sunday school. But my little four-year-old granddaughter was watching The Little Mermaid the other day with my with my other daughter, and and the little mermaid's trying to figure out this world, this part of this world, I want to be in this world. And my four-year-old granddaughter, she goes, why doesn't she know where the world came from? Doesn't she know Jesus made the world? I'm going, sister, preach it. All things (laughs) came into being through him. He doesn't have to put his tag on it to know it was made by him. Every living being, every mountain, every moon, everything is under the dominion and power and authority and sustaining grace of the Lord Jesus. This kind of helps us understand Genesis 1. You're kind of going, what happened to Genesis 1? God created the heavens and the earth. But then we see Jesus. He's the mediating agent. He's the the being that God chooses to to put things together. And so he has ownership of, of all creation. People like, God has no right to tell me what to do. Oh, You think so? Let me tell you a beautiful story about this verse. I was teaching a Bible study in one of our family's homes one day, and there was a little girl that I'd known since she was a child, and she was now in college, and she knew the gospel, heard the gospel, heard it over and over again. I buried her father. She heard it, heard it. We read this verse. She read it out loud, and she starts to weep. (laughs) We said, what's wrong? She said, wait, if Jesus made me, That means I belong to him. And if I belong to him, then that means I should be living my life for him. But I haven't been living my life for him. And she weeps, and she gets saved. And we all go, what just happened? Well, I'll tell you what just happened. Jesus Christ gave one of his own eternal life. And he uses the word of God to do that. And so we can have great confidence Someone says, ah, this is stupid. Hey, that's not my job to, to, to get them to change their mind. I just want to tell them what the word says. So Jesus created us, but then John's going to really emphasize how he came to creation. I want, you to, I want you to notice the different ways he starts in verse 5. Well, the light shines in the darkness. Okay? What does he mean by that, the light shines in the darkness? Well, understand here that darkness is not neutral. Darkness is a way of describing this earth. Jesus came to earth. And darkness describes ignorance and it describes evil. This is a dark, ignorant world that is estranged and hostile to its creator. It has its own leader called the prince of darkness. Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And here's Jesus up Receiving the glory and worship of all of the angels in heaven. But he steps across the stars and he comes into the darkness. And notice it says the darkness did not comprehend it. I really don't like that translation. That Greek word can mean comprehend, but it can also mean overpower. And it never means comprehend anywhere else in John. It always means overpower. Because the darkness here headed by Satan did everything it could to stop Jesus. When it came to this earth, kill him. But at the end of the day, when the dust cleared, here stood Jesus, Lord of all, with the keys of death and hell. And he overcame Satan. So Jesus came into the world, and the darkness did not overtake him. And most of the other translations will say that. The darkness did not overtake him. Jesus defeated Satan. Now, real quickly, why did God send John the Baptist? Jesus, he's got his own gig gone. He can bring people to believe But in God's providence, He has chosen to use human beings, us, little beings down here who can. Yes, I'm kind of being silly, but we can be witnesses to point people to Jesus. We're like little moons, we're just reflecting the sun. But God uses witnesses, and John was a remarkable witness. It says, look at verse seven. He came as a witness to testify, right? He came as a witness. What's a witness do? They just go, I'm telling you, man, this is the truth. So his mission was to be a witness. That's our mission. But his mission had a motive. Look, to testify why. Look at the next verse. So that all might believe through him. Here we go again. Why is, John, why all the aggression? Why do you care whether everyone believes? Because the Bible's gonna tell us, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you're gonna die in your sins, you're gonna go to hell. So there's an urgency to John's mission. And you're like, you mean I have to eat locusts and wild honey and wear camel skins? No, but you have to be a witness. You can't help but be a witness if Jesus has come into your life. Okay, so he came into his creation, but John's gonna, John's gonna dig into that a little bit. Why did he come into his creation? Why did he do that? Well, we'll think about that. Jesus came, first of all, to offer life and conquer darkness. He's looking down there and he's saying, these people are blind, but I'm going to be a light that shines in the darkness. These people are lost. They're without God. They're all going to go to hell. So I'm going to come down there as a light and I'm going to show them the way. I'm going to lead them back to God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes with God but through me. And I'm going to... Offer them eternal life. Secondly, I'm coming down here to put a beat down on Satan. See, Satan thought he had it all figured out. When Adam had that scepter of rod and ruling and it dropped from his hand, Satan snatched it before it hit the ground. He said, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world because they're handed over to me. And Jesus is like, you don't need to give them to me because I'm going to take them from you. Because I'm going to hang up on the cross, and now the prince of this world will be judged, and now the powers of darkness will be defeated, and I'll come out of the grave, and I'll have the keys of death and Hades. No, darkness will not overtake me. The Bible says the Son of God has come to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus is busy. He conquered him on the cross. He conquers him every time there's a convert. Every time someone comes to Christ, the Bible says they are snatched from the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of his beloved son. You and I are out there in a fallen world, undercover agents for Christ, leading people to Christ. Paul said, God told me to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. And I thank God that Jesus overcame darkness. And I'm standing up here because I was dead in my sins. And I was lost. And I was one of Satan's victims. But Christ came and he set me free. And if you're a Christian, he did that for you. 1 John says, we are of God, little children. But the rest of the world lies in the lap and power of Satan. But the Son of God has come and given us an understanding so that we might know him. And the evil one, he cannot touch us. Amen. Satan is, a, is, a, is an awful, awful force to be reckoned with. But he cannot touch us. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So he came to conquer darkness. But he also came to dwell among us. He, he likes to be with us. That's why I like dogs more than cats. Please don't, don't send me any hate mail. My dog likes to be with me. Whatever room I'm in, he's there write me something, you're like, I know Fluffy does too, just in general, usually Fluffy just wants tuna and change my litter box, but let's just think in broad terms, Jesus is not a dog, but he loves people and he wants to be with us, that's remarkable, I don't know why he wants to be with me, Jesus wants to be with me, he must have the wrong person, from the beginning when God called Israel out into the wilderness, he said, I want you to Exodus 25, 8, build a tabernacle that I might dwell among you. Why? Why would would you? God loves people. He loves to be in relationship with them, but he hates sin. And so when the Bible says in verse 14, let's go down to verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That very word means in Greek, dwelt is a Greek word for a tent, a tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in a tabernacle to be with his people. When Jesus came to earth, he's like, I'm the tabernacle, and the glory of God and the Shekinah is in me. But isn't it beautiful that now he tabernacles in his church through the Holy Spirit? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we commune with Jesus because he loves to be with us. He came to manifest God's glory. Gotta hurry. We beheld his glory. He came that we might receive grace. And then down in verse 18, he came to make God known. I've had people tell me this. When I read about God in the Old Testament, he scares me. And I'm like, he scares me too. It's not a bad thing to be a little bit as afraid of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of reverence, like you don't want to mess with God. But when I see in Christ, this tender son of man, A bruised reed he won't break. A smoldering flax he he won't quench. I see Jesus reaching out to the worst of sinners and saying, neither do I condemn you. Come unto me. No one has seen God at any time but the only begotten God, Jesus. In the bosom of the Father, his best friend in close communion, he has explained him. So the last thing we're going to ask this morning is, well, How did it go? Jesus went visiting to earth. How did it go, Jesus, during those 33 years? Let's go back and look in verse 10. He says, well, let, let me tell you what happened. For a long time, they didn't know me. I was just a carpenter's kid, born in a backwoods. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Mary, did you know that? Listen, these people had no idea. They probably pushed him out of the way. They said, ah, he's just a poor carpenter's kid. But one day at the age of 30, he's baptized. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and he starts doing miracles. And he says, I came from heaven. And they're like, you're whacked. He says, if you won't believe my words, believe on account of my works. You see anybody else raising the dead? Anybody else walking on water? Anybody else making the blind to see? Unless you believe, you'll perish. But notice how it goes from just ignorance to hostility. He came to his own. Hey, I created you. I used to live here. Get out. Those who were his own did not receive him. The very people of God, the Jews, the covenant nation, crucify him. You say, what? What? Yeah, they beat him. They they mocked him. They scoffed him. They spit on him. They said, let his blood be on us. Get him out of here. But God's, God's not going, don't do that. God's going, you know what? You just delivered my son up to the cross according to my predetermined plan. This is exactly what I planned, that on that cross, the Lamb of God would die for sinners like you and me. But then comes the good news. Most of them rejected him, but look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. People say to me, oh, pastor, we're all children of God. No, you're not. Oh, yeah, man, I've been to a Bono concert. We we sing Farm Aid, we hold hands. We are the world. It doesn't matter. We're all children of God. No, you're not. You might think you are. But if you have not received Christ, you have no right to call yourself a child of God. But what a remarkable offer. There were few back then who said, Jesus, I don't care what mom says. I don't care what dad says. I don't care what rabbi so-and-so says. Though no one joined me, I believe. I open up the doors of my heart, you stand and knock, and I say, come on in, Jesus. I don't need you for a crutch. I need you for a stretcher. I cast my soul upon you, Lord Jesus. And I ask you this question. Have you ever received Christ? You say, well, what does that mean? It says, even to those who believe in his name, who were born of God, who were sovereignly begotten. God is working in our church. And he is begetting children. And he is calling people to receive Christ. And you know what? Many of them receive him right here in church. If we had time, I'd say, how many of you received Christ in this room while someone was preaching? A number of you could stand up. But you know what? My prayer is that many of you will go out like midwives and you'll beget children. Your own children will come to Christ. Your workmates, your relatives, people in Poland, people in the Czech Republic, people in, in Spain and in the Canary Islands, people in New York. We're, we're taking this glorious gospel. But what does it mean to receive Christ, to believe in his name? Let me just mention A couple things, and and here's what I want you to ask. Have you ever done this? Number one, it means you got to know who he is. You can't receive somebody and not know who he is. you got to know that he's God and that he came and he died for your sins and rose again. But to receive him, to believe in him, is to welcome him with your heart. It's to be willing to say, hey, I have not lived for my creator and I'm living in darkness and I'm now turning to the light and I will trust myself to Jesus. I will cling to the cross and believe that he paid for my sin. And from this day forth, I will invite him to be my Lord and my Savior. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, is that that complicated? How, How do I receive Christ? If you haven't received Christ, do it right now. Even as I'm speaking, God's awakening some of you and you are receiving. You're going, yes, that's what I want. I don't, I, this is it. I'm receiving Christ. And if you do that, the Bible says God wants you to publicly acknowledge that. You confess with your mouth. You go, I'm in. You get baptized. You're like, I can't do that. Sure you can. It doesn't get you into heaven. That's how you publicly say, hey, I'm receiving Christ. So this morning as we close, I want to invite you Jesus is inviting you to receive Christ. And if you've already done this, listen, get in the game here. Go home and pray for your children, friends, loved ones, strangers, enemies. Oh, Lord, let me be a witness that someone might believe through me. This week I had a guy say to me, after about a 10-minute discussion when I was pointing him to Christ, he goes, I don't want to talk about religion anymore. Actually, I brought it up. And I go, yeah, you did. I said, but don't stop talking now. Because what if this is the difference between heaven and hell? Let's ask God to give us opportunities to be a witness. With our heads bowed, right there in your seat, just say, Lord Jesus, I do receive you. I do believe you're the son of God. I do believe you rose from the dead. I do believe that you can give me eternal life. I trust you. I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. I ask that I might be born into your family a new person. And Father, may the power of the Holy Spirit flow through this room, begetting converts. And may each of our children and children's children and all of our loved ones and dear friends may all believe through the witness of this church. Send forth your power and blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. If you want to talk about your relationship with Christ or you receive Christ this morning, please let me know at the door. God bless you. Have a great day.